Hello and welcome to the Beyond Your Research Degree podcast by the University of Exeter Doctoral College. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beyond Your Research Degree. I'm your host Kelly Priest, and today I am talking to Dr Demelza Kernow. And Demelza works in one of those many sort of academic related jobs or academic related fields but at this time at an organisation outside of academia called the Quality Assurance Agency. So Demelza, are you happy to introduce yourself? My name's Demelza Kerno. Um, my PhD was in um, medieval English. Um, the, the, the title was Five Case Studies in the Transmission of Popular Middle English Verse Romance. Um, possibly not the most catchy. Um, and as for where I am now, I'm based in the far tip of Cornwall, um, down near Penzance, in a near village called Ludgeman. Um, and I came back to Cornwall pretty close on, on finishing my, my PhD. Um, and my work over I suppose, the last 15 years or so has been in academic quality and standards and governance. Um, that wasn't what I went into immediately after my PhD. Um, and I can say more about that if you'd like me to. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we will get on to kind of how, how you got to um, academic quality and standards, definitely. But so what was the initial transition you made or the first role that you did after you finished your PhD? Well, I'm from a farming family and I finished my PhD realising that I knew nothing about anything apart from farming and, and Middle English, um, which is an unusual combination. And I guess one of the big differences that I'm conscious of between when I did my PhD 20 years ago and when they're done now is that all I did was my PhD. I, there, there was nothing around the edges in terms of employability and other skills um, and also I wasn't doing lots of teaching or doing the conference round either I was just specializing in it in, in my manuscripts um, and then I suppose the first what well, if you could call it a proper job that I had out, outside of family really was working at the cider farm up near Truro where I worked for about nine months as um, a tour guide and tractor driver and in some respects, I can actually trace my career journey from that point. And I think one of the, the really important things it did for me was force me to stand in front of people and speak, which was something that um, was complete anathema to me. And one of the reasons that I didn't want to go into an academic career. I'd never planned to go into an academic career. Um, I was simply doing my PhD for the, the sheer enjoyment of, of playing with medieval manuscripts. Um, this was quite fortunate in many respects because at the time that I was doing my, my PhD, many of the medieval departments around the country and universities were closing. Um, and I suppose I also felt that I wanted to have complete flexibility about where I lived. Um, so the, the jobs were actually reducing in, in my area of specialism. Um, and I felt that where I was mattered more to me, perhaps, than, than what I did. And that was coupled with this idea as well that I didn't feel that I was confident about standing up in front of lots of people and, and speaking. 
And maybe I wasn't entirely convinced by my credibility as a researcher either. Um, and I, I don't know how unusual that is in academia. I suspect not that unusual, really. Um, and particularly, perhaps not in, in the arts and humanities, which is where not, I was. Not that unusual at all. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I think the norm, rather, you know, the rule rather than the exception. So I think there's, there's just some really interesting things in there about what drives us to make career to choices. I mean, firstly, you know, what you're saying about actually, I just really loved playing with medieval manuscript. I loved doing the thing that my research was about. The goal of getting the PhD was not an academic career. And we do make the assumption that that's what people are kind of aiming for when they do a PhD. And that's by no means always the case. But also that our career decisions are also driven by geography. <laughs> you know, where in the country may we may want or need to be for various different reasons. Um, um, it, it was primarily um, sort of fam family reasons, really. Yeah, so it's, it is the kind of geography and, and needing to be locally. And, and also, yeah, and I think the other thing is also, you know, sometimes that is the priority. Our, our, our lives outside of our work are the priority rather than necessarily what you end up doing. Um, and they're important factors to consider when making career decisions. You know, we don't think enough about our lives and what we want out of our lives and how our jobs or careers might fit into that. So kind of having finished the PhD and doing a kind of a range of different things, um, forcing yourself into doing some public speaking, going back to your roots a little bit. Um, how did you go from there to where you are now? Um, well, my work at the cider farm, being in the sort of the tourism industry, took me to working at Tate. Um, and that's where I began to get much more experience around governance. Um, and in turn, that led to a job um, working in the Cornish branch of Sport England. Um, and I suppose, again, there I was specialising in governance a little bit more. And I was also working around local partnerships. And it was some of that work and some of the skills I was picking up there, which led to me getting a position as a graduate trainee in the quality and standards team at what was then University College Falmouth and, and later became Falmouth University. And I think one of the interesting things for me was that really by sheer chance, I ended up doing a lot of the accounts whilst I was working at the sports partnership. And certainly that sort of maths was, was not my background at all. I did maths up to A-level, um, but certainly wouldn't consider myself someone who could work with accounts. Um, but in preparing the organisation's accounts for audit with the, the county council um, accountant, one of the things I noticed was that looking for anomalies in numbers wasn't so different to looking for anomalies in words in manuscripts. So I, I could see how I was transferring what I had done in my PhD to quite a different situation. And I remember picking out that example when I was being interviewed for, for my graduate traineeship. And that, that graduate traineeship was only a 12 month post. And I think that's something which did characterize all my early posts. Um, I was applying for jobs which 
um, simply interested me. I was in a very, very fortunate position because I was living at home. So, and I always knew that if the worst came to the worst, I could go out and work on the farm. So I wasn't going to get bored. Um, but I, ju I just looked for jobs where I thought I could give it a decent stab. I could argue my case. Um, and I thought I'd enjoy it. And it didn't bother me at all to be applying for short-term posts. So my very first job at the cider farm was a seasonal one, but they, they kept me on. Um, my next one at Tate was a maternity cover. And I think maternity cover posts are absolutely brilliant. They're giving you um, experience in a role um, which might not look a natural fit, but if you can argue a case, people will often take a chance on you. It gets you some interesting experience and very often it opens up more doors. After that, it was another fixed term post. Then it was a, a, the 12 month post at, at Falmouth and that then led to a, a permanent position. So was that permanent position at Falmouth? Yes, it was. It was in the same team. It was an assistant registrar post. No, I think it's really interesting how kind of taking a circuitous route kind of back into an academic related role and actually going through kind of tourism and that experience kind of of working on a farm and kind of coming coming at it through that perspective you develop a whole range of skills applied a whole range of skills in different contexts like you were saying about kind of finding anomalies in language and finding anomalies in in um, in numbers isn't actually necessarily always that different and and kind of that bringing you back around into into quality and standards within a university um when you got the job at Falmouth were you kind of motivated to to kind of go back to working in an educational university setting or or was that just like you say you you were kind of just following following a role that looked interesting and an opportunity that looked interesting? I think always in the back of my mind had been at my viva for, for my PhD. My external examiner was asking me about my future ambition and whether or not I intended to be an academic. Um, and I was very clear then that, that no, that wasn't my intention at all. And he suggested to me that I should look at going into university administration. And he was saying at that point that it's often very, very valuable to have somebody who has got a little bit more experience of being on the academic side than working on the administrative side, because there is um, a different sort of understanding. Um, I think up to a point he's right. I would also say that within quality and standards, possibly the best person I've ever had working for me was somebody who had no higher education experience herself. She hadn't done a degree. Um, so I don't think it is necessary, but it has certainly really helped me. Um, I think it has sometimes given me a credibility I don't necessarily deserve, but it has certainly altered how people have perceived me and, and that has helped. I think that's really important and like you say the you know the value of actually having that experience and that contextual knowledge whether or not <laughs> whether or not that actually is always a necessity in practice but certainly in applying for jobs <laughs> you know that being able to confer that kind of experience is really useful um I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the role that you're in now please 
um, you know, what it is that you're doing? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. As I, as I was saying, I suppose my background has become academic quality and standards. So all of the policies and procedures and regulations that help a higher education provider demonstrate to a third party in the external world that the, the degrees and the education they're offering are at the level they should be. Um, and then governance, which is very much around um, and how you're managing that internally. So I worked my way through a, a few different um, universities. Um, and I was involved a little bit with the QAA, which is the Quality Assurance Agency for Higher Education. And this is the body that sits between the regulatory and funding bodies for each of the four UK jurisdictions, um, and then the sector itself. And the role that the QAA has taken over the years has, has varied a little bit. Um, so at the moment, if you look across the, the, the four UK nations, there's the Office for Students in England, there's the Scottish Funding Council in Scotland, the Higher Education Funding Council for Wales in Wales, although there's legislation going through to change that at the moment. And then it, it, there's the, um, I think it's the Department for um, Education perhaps or Environment in Northern Ireland. Um, and so each of those bodies has a relationship with the QAA and the QAA then manages the oversight of, of higher education. Um, but for people who aren't familiar with it, I suppose the best way to describe it is think a little bit about Ofsted in schools, but actually the um, oversight of quality and standards in higher education works on a slightly different um, footing to schools. Um, I think we would describe it as a bit more mature and it's, it's peer review instead. So um, many years ago, um, just sort of towards the end of my time at Falmouth, um, I applied to the QAA to be one of their reviewers. So one of the people drawn from higher education providers around the country who would go into a team to visit another higher education provider um, and look at how they were managing their academic quality and standards um, and write a report and make a judgment. Um, so I did that for them for a few years as I sort of moved between, between different universities myself. And then um, um, I thought that I would sort of take maybe a year or two where I'd step back and think about what I wanted to do because the sector was changing quite a lot as well at that point. Um, so I got a part-time job working in university research administration, which was a little bit of a gap that I had in my portfolio, really. I'd always worked much more with, with the talk provision and less with I suppose with research students as well and how we manage research students, but less with the sort of the pure research itself. And if I did want to step back into a career and aim for sort of academic registrar or even registrar and secretary, then getting some exper more experience around research was going to be valuable to me. And again, I was simply taking the approach of, and even if it wasn't, I'd enjoy myself in the meantime. Um, so I picked up a part-time job doing that. And then I suppose about four, four months later, the QAA was advertising for something called flexible part-timers. Um, and um, I went for that job and I got that as well. So I, I've then been managing um, a substantive role 
um, as a research administrator alongside a flexible role with the QAA. And the flexible role is technically zero hours. Um, in reality, it, there is enough work that I can be full time. I think. Um, but I'm a sort of, it's like, a bit like being a minister without portfolio. Um, I can lead all sorts of different projects. It just depends where the gap is. So I've been um, designing and leading professional development courses for people in the sector for the QAA. Um, I've been, I'm currently leading the work around micro-credentials and writing the micro-credentials characteristic statement. Um, and I've done quite a bit of international work as well, which I've really enjoyed. The only thing I cannot do working with them is anything to do with quality assessment England and the designated quality body responsibilities. And that's because the Office for Students would see it as a conflict with my broader role and also the fact that I've got a substantive role within a provider. In fact, that substantive role is coming to an end in the next week and I'm going to be concentrating um, all my time within the QAA. But again, I'm going to be balancing um, a flexible part-time or an FPT role with um, a, a 0.5 role, which is in the Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and Europe division of QAA. So again, doing sort of institutional liaison and um, looking to develop the, the new review method for the Scot Scottish higher education providers. Wow, thanks for that. It sounds absolutely, um, absolutely fascinating. And I'm, yeah, I'm just continually really, really, um, really struck by the kind of the mantra you have about following your following your interest and 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 doing doing the thing that feels right and looks interesting and kind of seeing where that goes because I think we always feel like we need to find we need to have the answer like even after even the first job after PhD needs to be the answer that needs to be my career my job you know as if it's a kind of final or an end point and actually you know these things are constantly evolving I wondered if you could say something for anybody that we've got listening who is interested in um, a role in kind of the QAA or quality and standards and and in a, in or you know in in or outside a university. What advice would you give them about the kind of key skills that they need to develop or the key experiences, or just how having a PhD or any other form of research degree might be useful for them in that context? If you've done a PhD, one of the things that you, you, you've had to learn is you've got to be flexible. You might have an idea on how you're going to get from A to B, but actually something could, could change that. Um, and I mean, in doing a PhD, we do that all the time, don't we? It's just that, that your research takes you down a different route or something you thought would work doesn't work, so you try something else. And I think one of the things that a PhD really does is enables a level of reflection that you don't normally get sort of at, at some of the lower levels. And I think being a reflective practitioner is really, really important. Um, I remember one of the things I said to members of my staff is, if something has gone wrong, we need to know why it's gone wrong, but not in a way that then sort of um, paralyzes us so that we can't move forward. It's just, it should be much more a question of, right, that didn't happen as I expected. Why is that? Actually, was it better? Did, did we learn something that we can actually use for something else? Or should we do it that way in the future? Um, so I guess that's one thing, always being open to different ideas and being prepared to change direction and to listen to other people. And 
that way of like sparking ideas off different people. Um, and I guess the other thing is that doing a PhD, you've got, you've got to be somebody who can stick at something, even through the boring bits, um, and get to the end. So, I mean, certainly in arts and humanities, I know it's a little bit different in the sciences where often you're, you're applying for a project that somebody else has designed. But in arts and humanities, where actually you're designing your own project as well. Um, you're seeing something through from the sort of real conception right through to the final completion. So it gives you that real sort of stickability, which I, I think is, is quite important too. Thank you so much to Demelza for sharing her knowledge and experience with us. And I think has made some really excellent, excellent points about the path and the journey of a career and that, you know, the first job you have outside of your research degree, whether it's um, an admin job or um, a postdoc or a teaching job or working on a cider farm, um, that's not your career forever. These things um, shift and change and evolve and it's been really interesting to hear how that's worked for Demelza. And that's it for this episode. Join us next time when we'll be talking to another researcher about their career beyond their research degree.